please welcome Terry Virgo. Thank you so much. Uh, when I first uh, knew that Eddie was coming and uh, was delighted in that, I said to Topia, I should like to be there. Uh, I was intending just to listen. And so when I saw the literature come out and saw I'm speaking, I thought, I'm speaking? I want to just hear him and uh, take every opportunity to uh, draw from him. But uh, when I saw it was in print and all the rest of it, I thought, OK. Um, and immediately, to be honest, what I want to speak about uh, came to me and I, I wanted to go to Ephesians 4. And really, it's going to overlap quite a bit with what Eddie's saying, but I think come from a British perspective, arguably, although from a biblical perspective, I trust. Uh, and uh, I'm so grateful for the way God has led Eddie in terms of what they've done in their church life and the health that's being produced right through the body. And uh, I want to speak to you from Ephesians 4, and uh, I'm going to read to you from uh, verse 4, and then we'll pick it up. Okay, so Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being filled, are fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Father, we thank you for your presence right now. Thank you for your promise to give the Spirit to those who ask. And we ask right now, Father, for the Holy Spirit to rest upon us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come be our teacher. Please come lead us into truth. Take the things of Christ and reveal them to us, we pray. We pray for a spirit of revelation to rest upon us as we open your word together. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to uh, pick up, in a sense, where Eddie left off, talking about these five-fold ministries, these ministries that God has raised up to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now we know that since the Reformation, we would argue theologically for the priesthood of all believers. We would argue that pre-Reformation, yes, the priest was regarded as something of a holy 
kind of a mediator. A priest was regarded as someone who knew God, who was with God. He was a unique figure. The, the laity uh, didn't know God. The priest knew God. He was, he was the one who went into the presence of God, as it were, on our behalf. He prayed. He fellowshiped with God. And uh, the, the lay people didn't really come into much of a relationship with God. Then came the sweeping outbreak of the Reformation, which showed us, yes, justification by faith. Jesus, our great high priest, we're all priests, we're all uh, members of this functioning body. But in all reality, uh, the full impact of that has not come sweeping right through. So we may say, yes, we're all priests, but still there has that uh, symbol of the, the, the pastor, the church leader, uh, the figure, he's the guy who is the voice, he's the representative. And the image, uh, to be honest, of the, the pastor is very often uh, shaped by modern culture, shaped by the culture down through the ages. So even past the, the Reformation, the minister began to, yeah, he was no longer uh, seen as the, the, the Roman Catholic concept of a priest. He didn't have to be celibate anymore, didn't have to have that kind of otherworldliness. He's celibate, doesn't have a family, he's kind of weird, he's kind of out there. Uh, no, 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 okay, so he's now a guy with his family. Now he's, yeah, he's like us, but yeah, he just became a part of society. And uh, if you read novels and things of previous generations, uh, you went into the church, like I might, might go into the army, and he's, he's like the, the local squire, he's the kind of the man. He still was the representative in some sort of way. And then gradually as time went by and uh, uh, the enlightenment and people learning, and, oh, the, the, the preacher needs to learn more. So we started Bible schools and more, and more research and making sure you've got degrees so that you can answer the critics. And so, yeah, you had to get your degrees because, well, we can answer that back. So what was happening in the world was often shaping what was happening in the church. And then gradually the whole kind of therapy thing came through with people who say, like, lie down, tell me your deepest troubles, I can answer you. Well, the pastor better learn to delve back into people's history and find out about them and draw things out. So that was began to be an emphasis. The pastor was real able to heal your deep wounds. And, the, and then gradually, hey, we're going into church growth. We're going into uh, having your five-year plan. You need to learn from the business world uh, because they know about five-year plans and how to think ahead. And, and so, so the, the pastor today is a bit more shaped like a businessman. Have you got your thoughts together? Have you got your plans together? What are you going to do by it? And so, very often, church leaders are somewhat reflecting what's out there. Yeah. In the Bible, it says uh, there are pastors and teachers. I want to work through this series, this list of ministries, backwards. It says he ascended on high, he gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, he gave some evangelists, he gave some pastors and teachers. Now, some would question even the possibility of those ministries continuing. Uh, even the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that only the pastor-teacher continues. Uh, for him, even the evangelist is finished, according to his uh, uh, writing on Ephesians 4. That, that's, that's a finished thing. So he only says one has continued. I want to argue in the end for all of them to continue. But I want to start in reverse order, because we're most comfortable with the pastor-teacher but we would tend to let the, 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 the pastor be shaped very often by other values. Whereas in the Bible, the shepherd is a beautiful analogy or metaphor of relationship between God and us, actually. And God, when he called 
Moses initially. When he called Abraham, when he called Moses, Moses was a shepherd. That's what he actually did. And although we get used to this word pastor almost as a secular technical word, it means shepherd. And, and the shepherd is almost the shepherd and flock, is almost the most profound biblical relationship. We know father and son, but you know, Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. They learned to look after sheep. And God raised them up to look after his flock. And actually even goes into the book of Revelation. If you go right into Revelation 7, it says the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. This is the book of Revelation. He will lead them to springs of water. So this relationship of a shepherd with his flock is a beautiful thing. It's not something that's just a professional. It's not that, well, I, I went to theological college. I got my degree. It's a relational development. A shepherd with his flock. It's that I, I, I belong in this context. Now, of course, most of us will realize that the word shepherd, the word elder, the word bishop or overseer, those three words are all used of the same people. You'll see that in Acts 20, verse 28, for instance, where Paul called the elders together and told them to shepherd the church of God as the, of whom they were overseers. So all these three words are used of this one ministry. You're looking after these people who are in your flock. Jesus also said, I am the good shepherd. He didn't say I'm the good, good apostle, I'm the good evangelist, I'm, I'm the good prophet, although he was all those things. He loved to say, I am the good shepherd. And, and in the Old Testament it says, where the shepherds of Israel had failed, God said, I will come down, I will be their shepherd. There's something about shepherding that's very beautiful in God's eyes. And, and coming into a flock, Jesus said, I am the shepherd, I am the door to the flock. Coming into a church should come through a relationship with the shepherd or plural shepherds, elders, the group of leaders of that flock. Coming in, you're coming into a relational thing. You're not just saying, well, I come to this place on a Sunday, I might go to another place, or I used to go to another place, and I'm, I'm now joining you, and I don't like the way you do it. Uh, no, you're coming in saying, no, okay, I realize that you, you are the shepherds of this flock. You're the ones who care for this people. You're the ones who have responsibility for the flock here. And so shepherd, I would personally put shepherd and teacher pretty close to one another. You'll find in the structure of the verse in Ephesians 4, it goes, some apostles, some evangelists, some prophets, some pastors and teachers. Not some pastors and some teachers. And I think it says in Jeremiah, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And so, the, you see, some people say, well, he's more of a pastor um, and he's more of a teacher. Because, like, the pastor really loves people. You know, he sort of comes and drinks cups of tea with you and he's a really nice guy. And uh, you think, well, what is, what is he feeding you with then? <laughs> if he's not feeding you with truth. Or you might say, well, actually, he's more of a teacher, doesn't like people much, he just likes books. And uh, I'm not sure that's really what the Bible's talking about. So, so the pastor, teacher, the, the, the shepherd will feed us with truth, feed us with understanding. These ministries, God has given then shepherds, God's given us those who will care for the flock of God, those who he has raised up to feed the flock. And as we've been hearing so superbly from Eddie, to equip 
the saints. All of these ministries in Ephesians 4 are to equip the saints for this work of ministry. So they themselves, we reproduce that ability within the ranks of the church. So the pastor teacher, yes, is one, a team of pastors and teachers who will care for the flock of God. They're ones who will submit themselves to this wonderful truth. They will feed the flock and, the, and they will have to. I like the image of the stones. When people can get saved in a moment, you know, people often say, if you don't preach a proper gospel, they won't get properly saved. You have to include this and this and this and this. And if you don't include this really very biblical gospel, they'll have an inadequate conversion. It's not true. People get saved in the most extraordinary ways. Amazing, amazing things. I've heard some testimonies very recently. I was in the USA and I was just meeting a group of elders asking, tell us your background. And it was amazing stories of redemption, really. People, broken lives. One of them saying, I was in this terrible state and this terrible state. I was crying out, oh God help me. I turned on the television and one of these outrageous people on American television and they preached the gospel and I knelt on the floor in my room and got saved. You think, okay. Uh, you know, you can, you can, people say, how would you get saved? Well, I saw this text on the side of a bus. And I thought, wow, is that true? And, and people get saved yeah. like that. But actually your health isn't the way you got born, it's the health of the family you join. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and when you come in, you come in with a completely wrong worldview, especially in the modern world. Uh, Christendom's impact on the British culture is gone. So people come in with their views about marriage, about sexual relationships, about the workplace, about getting away with money things. They've got all, all these things that's there. Their worldview has to be completely taken away and replaced by a completely different worldview. We don't just ask Jesus into our heart and turn up at meetings on Sunday. So the, the teaching has got to eradicate from us a whole load of values that have to be drained away and be replaced by another body of truth that changes the way we look at everything. So the role of the teaching is not just give information. It's totally life-changing. It, it kills things off. It is like a hammer. That has to go. That has to go. God wants to replace that with completely different values. Oh, but my neighbour, yeah, your neighbour doesn't know the gospel. Oh, but my parents, yeah, did they know? Well, no, they didn't know the Lord. Yeah, that means you may have to lose a lot of previous values. So the pastor teacher is not just preparing sermons. He's shaping lives and helping others to shape one another's lives. So we have to be shaped by the truth of God, that our whole value system changes. And the more we get to see, and the more we get to know, I've just been noticing, working through Corinthians, Paul completely says, do you not know? Yeah. He often asks that question, do you not know? There are things we need to know that completely change our value system. And that's what happens, you come into a flock, into a church where shepherds take seriously feeding the people, rearranging their thinking and helping that to be equipped right through the body. So he has given pastors and teachers, he's given these ministries. Then also it says he's given some who are evangelists. I, I believe the evangelist has a reaping skill. He has an ability to proclaim the gospel. There's something about the evangelist that is, it just cuts through, just cuts to the heart of people. 
I often hear, feel, when I, I, I know a wonderful evangelist called Rambabu, an Indian evangelist, and I often feel I explain the gospel, he announces it. There's something about, the, there's just a declaration that reaps. And the great Billy Graham, who uh, has been in the press quite a bit lately, he said, he said when I, I heard him say one time, when I say, I want you to get up out of your seat now, he said, I feel the power of God upon me. It's an anointing. And while we, while we think there's just one man, is the, he's the leader of our church, he's the guy, you know, he's got to be the evangelist, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, that one. And, and yet in the Bible, no, it's multiplied ministries. And in as much as we ignore that, we just say, no, there's just the pastor, we are missing all these other gifts and what they bring to the table. And so we need to open up our hearts, say, Lord, you, the Lord of the harvest, I'm often praying this, Lord, Thrust forth labourers. That's what Jesus told us to pray. We need, we need harvesters. We need people who can, can reap. They can just penetrate hearts and pull people in. And I would feel there are lots of different kinds of evangelists. I think any evangelist must be able to reap, but some are much more equipping in terms of one-to-one. How to, how to engage with people in a one-to-one style. I was once at a church that we worked with and uh, meeting people for the first time, went around a room of men. I said, how did you become a Christian? And one after another told their stories. And several of them pointed across the room to one guy and said, I worked with him, he led me to Christ. And another one said, oh, I'll work with him, he led me to Christ. And, uh, you know, it's wonderful to hear this guy led several to Christ. And a few years later, they invited this guy to come out and be their full-time evangelist, whereupon... He led no one to Christ because he was one of these just in people's lives and making, he knew how to do that. He knew how to equip one another to do that. But actually, he was not a platform man. He wasn't a public speaker. And I think you can get all kinds of different evangelistic gifts. So you get someone like a Billy Graham and just to hear his voice excites you. Just uh, they've got these little cuts. I understand he's in hospital right now, so he may be in the news quite a bit in days ahead that wonderful penetrating call. Some just have the skill one-to-one to draw people in. But it is a different gift to the teacher. It's a different gift to the pastor. And we need to say, God, show us how to make space and to believe for the multiplication of evangelists. I want to learn more from Eddie about how they've worked that and how that's come through for them. But we do need to acknowledge the reality. He has ascended on high. He wants a mature body with every part working properly, it says. That's when we come to maturity. Not like children tossed about. Children, innocent, immature, multiplied, but one body. Contrast, one mature body or lots of children being tossed about. God wants a mature body. And to bring us to that maturity, we need these diverse ministries. So the evangelist, yes, he reaps, but he also inspires us to reap. He moves us to reap. And I think for many of our churches, we may not be able to employ an evangelist. So, well, we've got, you know, we've, we've released some elders. I don't know if we can afford to release an evangelist. I think if churches work together and say, right, look, let's, let's release some finance to get that evangelist, he could work among us. And have an impact upon us, can reap among us. So the evangelist, okay, I'm just going to rush through these. Then next, the prophet. 
Well, there's no kind of description in the New Testament about what the prophet is. It's really rooted back into the Old Testament without any further explanation. So in the, in the Old Testament, the prophet was clearly the voice of God. God spoke through them. In fact, probably the clearest biblical definition is when God says to Moses, I want you to go. And Moses says, I can't speak. So God says to Moses, well, you, you, you take Aaron with you. He can speak. Then you can be as God to Aaron, and Aaron will be your prophet. So there's God's definition of, an, of a prophet. You speak, he will speak for you. In the Old Testament, prophets spoke on behalf of God. They spoke the word of God. They saw visions. They had revelations. God spoke to them. They uttered the voice of God. And then, of course, Joel has this extraordinary prophecy in the Old Testament. In the end times, the last days, the days we're in, I'll pour my spirit on all flesh. And your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. There's going to come an age of the spirit. We're prophesying. It's just part of the deal. I think for many of us, you think, well, prophets were in the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, you had Elijah and Samuel and Moses. You know, that. In the New Testament, you've got the church. You've got committees and deacons. But no, no, in the Bible, it says, in the end times, I'll pour my spirit out on all flesh. There's going to come a phenomenal outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which will result in multiplied prophesying. I would think there are three categories. It says, first of all, it says, all may prophesy. Yeah. All may prophesy. Yes. And so we find, for instance, in Acts 19, where fresh converts have just received the Spirit. Uh, Paul's just led them to Christ, baptised them, lays hands on them, the Spirit falls upon them, and they prophesy. Amen. They prophesy. Because, well, I mean, you've only just become a Christian. Yeah, I've just been filled with the Spirit. I'm prophesying. It's just like when you pray or prophesy. You may all prophesy. It's, it's something that's a mark of the age we're in. It's a demonstration we are the dwelling place of God in a, in a wonderful way. We don't just turn up at meetings, we can prophesy. That, that was the mark of the New Testament church. We are a community of the Spirit. Prophesying should be part of who we are together. And it says categorically in Corinthians, all may prophesy. Then you also get this, that there are some who tend to prophesy. <laughs> It says about yeah. Philip had four daughters who prophesied. Yeah. Now, I, I always use the New American Standard Bible. I think it's a great translation. But it gets this one wrong. It says Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses. Mm. And it doesn't say that. Yeah. In the, it says prophesied. It's a verb, yeah. not a noun. Yeah. So Philip, the evangelist, had four daughters who prophesied. Yeah. I often think, what was it like at breakfast in their home? You know? <laughs> Now, it says all may prophesy, but Philip had four daughters who did. I would think there's a kind of second category. There are those who tend to do it. There are those who tend to prophesy. And then I would say there's a third category, prophets. So when Paul was in Philip's home with his four daughters who prophesied, this is Agabus came into the home. Agabus, the prophet, came into the home and prophesied to Paul and said, this is what's going to happen to you. Remember, he took, 
he took the uh, belt and tied him. And, and, and this, this is a prophet. This is a guy who said there's going to be famine and they started taking up a correction because this guy had prophesied. And so I would feel there were uh, three categories of prophesying. All may prophesy. There are some who do prophesy, but that, I don't think that makes them like an Agabus prophet. We may have in our churches a number of people who, yeah, they tend to prophesy. I wouldn't call them a prophet as a result. A prophet was quite a key figure in the Bible. And there were only a few of them, comparatively speaking, who were prophets, foundational prophets. Now, it also says in the New Testament that prophecy is to be weighed by the others. It says in the New Testament, we prophesy in part. In other words, New Testament prophecy does not stand on the same standing as Jeremiah or Isaiah or Elijah or Moses. In the New Testament, we all may prophesy, but we prophesy in part. We're told to hold on to that which is good. We're told to weigh the prophets, let the others weigh. So it's not for the person to say, I know God spoke to me, that the other's way. So the authority lies with the others, which is unlike the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the authority lies with the prophet. God has told me. In the New Testament, the authority lies with the others who can weigh it, consider it. So we find in the scriptures then, pastors and teachers, flock leaders, shepherds, They've got relationship. My, my, my sheep know my voice, they follow me. There's a, there's a relational thing. There's a, there's a caring. They have a rod and a staff. It gives them some authority. They know how to keep wolves away. They bring security to the flock. It's not that we're meant to be, well, I go to this church this week, next month I'll try that one, and I'll, I'll go over there, and I'll try over there. That, you will never come to maturity yeah. if you don't belong to a flock. And so the shepherds, yeah, they, they, they feed us with understanding, they feed us with truth, they reshape us with biblical wisdom, they feed us on truth. They're not coming up with their bright ideas, they're bringing the word of God to us. Shepherds and teachers. Then there are evangelists who've got real skill to reap, real ability that's beyond and a different gift to the pastor teacher. It's a different gift. Has to, be, has to be recognized. Sometimes the pastor teacher can do evangelism. Paul said to, to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. It was almost like, do that as well. And I think we can all do other things. And all these things can overlap. When we're talking about the work of the Spirit, he's described as fire, as wind, as water. A lot of these things you can't put in clear definitions. The Spirit blows where he will. But nevertheless, we want to take definition seriously. So pastors and teachers have one gifting, one skill, to expound, to, to, to feed the flock. The people tend to come to a particular church because when that guy speaks, I hear God. I just, I just hear God. And you feel, I, I am fed here, I belong here, this is where I am. This is, this is how a flock grows. People start hearing and, and feeding on that wisdom. They, they find, I hear God through that voice. That's the gift. Teaching, expounding truth, meeting with God through the word. But then also the evangelist can go beyond and, and, and get through to the heart of that one who's got no association with God. The evangelist reaps 
and pulls people in. The prophet is bringing the immediacy of a word. A teacher may expound. He might work through a, an epistle, might work through Ephesians. Work week after week after week, teaching us, teaching us, showing so clearly he is himself under the authority of this Bible. Not just coming with his bright ideas, like what does it say next? Like this is what it says, this is what it means, this is how you live. The prophet would very often live with a passion. He'll say, this is the word of the Lord. It's like John the Baptist, great prophet. And Herod, Herod said, he says, Herod would love to go and hear him. And you just like, open this hole, bring out, what do you got to say? Repent. Oh, okay, what do I say tomorrow? Repent, you know, every time. Uh, Jeremiah, what are you saying? This is the word of the Lord. This is the burden of the Lord. That word burden gets used in association with the prophet, the burden of the Lord. Mm. He carries a burden. He's not so expositional. He's not, yeah. he, he carries something in his heart. He carries a passion. He's a bit of a plumb line. He's saying, look, this is it. Come back to yeah. truth. You're, you're wandering off. Come back to this word of God. The prophet's different. And then finally, then, the apostle. Some of you may have been surprised even to, to hear Eddie just say, oh, I'm the apostle. Some of us say, what do you mean the apostle? We, we, may, we may not be with Lloyd-Jones and say there are no evangelists, but some of us might feel, okay, okay, there's the evangelist, but the prophet, prophet? I thought prophets had finished. Well, you know, you say, you, <laughs> I've noticed when someone dies, like A.W. Tozer, after he's dead, you can call him a prophet. While he was alive, he was a teacher, you know, but when you, oh, that great prophet. In fact, I've heard Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to as apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher since he died. But when you're alive, you don't call anyone an apostle. But actually, we just need to come back to that freshly. And so what is the apostle then? Well, many would say, well, of course, there were only 12. And that's the end of the story. But actually, there weren't only 12. I would say, first of all, Hebrews chapter 3 says, Jesus, the apostle of our faith. He is the unique, standalone apostle. The apostle. Then there are the 12 who are also evidently very unique in that they're referred to in Revelation as foundational to the city of God. There are the 12 raised up, obviously significant number compared with the 12 sons of Israel. This, this obvious symbolic number. They are unique. Then you also get other names in the New Testament. You get not only the Apostle Paul. See, some would argue that when Judas lost the way, the early church was too quick. They, they should have waited for Paul. But the Bible doesn't say that. And, and, and Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 about the 12. He never sees himself as one of the 12. He sees himself as separate from that. But the Apostle Paul was not only himself maybe in a category of his own, but also when he's actually commissioned to his apostolic work in Acts 13, it's separate for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. Acts 14, 14, the Apostles, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas, not just Paul, Barnabas. What about James, the brother of our Lord Jesus? Again, a, a man who didn't apparently put any confidence in his brother Jesus during Jesus' ministry and lifetime, 
but then is regarded as an apostle, not only apostle, but a senior apostle. So in Acts 15, where you get the Council of Jerusalem, it's James who sums up. It's James who seems to have real authority, even among the twelve. So apostleship was never just the twelve. And there are those, of course, who would say, well, the apostles, their, their calling was simply to write scripture. That was what they were called to do, to write the Bible for us. And now we have the Bible, we have epistles, so we don't need apostles. It's a done deal. We've got, we've got the... And so, but it doesn't really stand up. If you think of the twelve, only three of them wrote scripture. When you think, who wrote, more, who wrote most New Testament? More New Testament than anybody else. Luke, who's not called an apostle at all. But so many of our evangelical brothers and sisters would say, no, the main task of an apostle is to write Bible. But it, it just doesn't stand up. It's not true. Why do they say that? I, I would suggest to you that when biblical commentaries began to be written in the way that we've understood over the years, they were written by the reformers in their concern against the Roman Catholic Church with its claim of apostolic succession in the Pope. And so I think they were very strong to oppose any idea that apostles continued. And each commentary writer is built on the previous commentary writer. So the whole concept, you know, that the apostles were just Bible writers. But what about the work of an apostle? What about what they actually did? I mean, if we say that several of them didn't write any Bible, so well, you'll go away, you're a useless apostle, you didn't write any Bible. No, they were, that wasn't it. They, they had a role to play, a foundational role. And maybe the clearest word we get is when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace given to me, which ties into Ephesians 4, he ascended on high, he gave great gifts, he gave grace, he gave people. Paul says, according to the grace given to me as a wise master builder. The word from which we get our word architect. So, so Paul's ministry could be described like, a, like an architect, like a, a foundation layer, like a, a guy with the master plan. Again, it's a different ministry, it's a different gift. The apostles, therefore, were fundamental. They were foundational to the forming of this new people on planet Earth. Without the apostles, we wouldn't have understood who are this new community. Is it just a sect of Judaism? Are there just some Jews who are going after the Messiah? Jesus said, I've got more to say to you, but I, if I said it now, you wouldn't understand. He said... When the Spirit comes, he'll take what's mine and reveal it to you. He'll lead you into all truth. Then you'll know. Then you'll know. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. And I am in you. That's absolutely breathtaking, hidden mystery from previous generations. I am in you. I'm in the Father. The whole of the identity of the church was something that was a mystery hidden from before, but now revealed. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, it's a mystery formerly hidden, now revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So the apostles gave us the definition of 
who we are now. Previously, God was working just with the Jews, just with the, the children of Abraham. If you wanted to get into God's people, you could become a proselyte, you could go through certain rites, you could go through certain baptisms and become like a God-fearer. You could join the Jews. Now the gospel's blasted out to all the nations. So who are these people? Who defines them? The apostles did. They laid the foundation. It says when 3,000 were saved, it doesn't say that actually in Acts, it says 3,000 were added. So what were they added to? They were added to this group of apostles who'd been with Jesus for three years. And he taught them day and night. And then it says the 3,000 devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They understood who you now are. They understood what happened on the cross. You see, you would never know. You look at Jesus on the cross and think, why is that man dying? What's it all about? We don't understand what's happening. The apostles tell us what was happening. The apostles tell us he's taking away your sin. He's taking away your guilt. God judged him in your place. If the apostles hadn't told us that, we wouldn't know. You look at the cross, you think, what is that all about? You wouldn't know this either. Not only that he died for your sins, but you died with him. That you were crucified with, I was crucified, how do I know that? The apostles tell us. The apostles tell us what the church is. The apostles tell us what it is to be in Christ. The apostles tell us the great sweep of God's purposes. The apostles were hugely important. And if we say, well, they just wrote the Bible. No, they did this work. They, day and night they taught. Paul says, I'm praying for you to get a spirit of revelation, to understand who you are in Christ. That you might come to fullness and maturity. That was apostolic ministry. It's so important for us, dear friends, to understand that it was the work of an apostle and to understand how it works in the church. Let's just remind ourselves that Jesus used the word church twice. In the Gospels, he said, I will build my church. That's the universal, historic church down through the centuries, across what we would call the denominations, known to him, his, I will build my church. He knows who they are. He knows where they are. Also, he said this, if you've got a problem with your brother, go to him. If that doesn't sort it, take two or three with you. If that doesn't sort it, tell it to the church. What church? Well, the church where you live. The church you're part of. Those are the two biblical images of the church. The global church and the church where you live. In a sense, that's the only two ways the Bible knows church. So sometimes when people talk about church unity, and they say, well, let's join the congregational church to the Methodist church, or to the Baptist church, or the Church of England. I mean, that's, these are just concepts the Bible knows nothing about. <laughs> because, well, the, I mean, the Church of England, I mean, it's not the universal church, is it? Nor is it the local church, is it? So it's between this and this. So it's not a biblical definition. So the Methodist church is not a biblical definition. So let's say, well, let's join them to make church unity. The Bible's never heard of either of them. So that's not what it's talking about in the Bible when it talks about unity. That, that's just doing, I don't know what it's doing, but it's not relevant. It's not relevant. The Bible only knows the universal church. That's why we should love saints right across Right across, all of that. but he's Church of England. He's, in, he's the Lord's. 
We belong to one another. So I will build my church, but tell it to the church, the, where you are joined. Now what we would tend to say is Ephesians chapter 2. It says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And so we say, yeah, well, so at the beginning, but Paul didn't use it only in that way. Paul says, when I was in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3, I laid a foundation. It's not just a philosophical concept, it's not just a historical concept. He did his apostolic job at Corinth. I did, I came to you, I laid a foundation. It's like Billy Graham saying, I came to Haringey in the 50s or 60s or Wembley. I did my evangelistic thing in London in the 50s and 60s. Paul could say, I came to Corinth and did my, my apostolic thing. I laid my gift. I laid a foundation. So what is that foundation? It's Christ. It's understanding what happened at the cross, what God did in the incarnation, what happened at the cross, what happened at the resurrection, what happened when he ascended and sat on the throne, how you're related to all that. He laid that foundation. So apostolic ministry for Paul would be, yes, there's a group of new converts. Maybe he's brought them to birth. Maybe the evangelist has. Maybe like at Antioch, they're spontaneously gathered as fresh converts then the apostolic foundation will be laid in. The truth about who you are in Christ. The truth about how you should live as a result of that. That was apostolic doctrine. That was truth. You may understand the great purposes of God. Not just add a little bit of religion to your pagan lives, but understand you are a new creation. You're a phenomenon in the earth. You're the bride of Christ. You're the temple of the Spirit. All these these apostolic truths need to be put into the churches. And we, we find either people say, well, there's no apostles today. They've done their thing. So we don't have them. Then someone said, well, of course, the apostle means missionary. Apostolos is Greek. Missio is Latin. It just means a missionary. But that doesn't really work. I know agricultural missionaries in Nepal. I mean, they, they're just doing agriculture. I don't, I don't despise it. But it's not an apostle. And there are nurses who are missionaries. And there are, I mean, that's, so to just say, well, it just means missionary. No, it doesn't tie up. Now, I'm sure that if we look back through church history, when you read about some great pioneering Hudson Taylor, people like that, I mean, probably they were doing actually apostolic work, founding churches all over. But we must see that church founding Church planting is an ongoing ministry. It's something that God still wants, something God is after, and that's the work of an apostle. So we get some who say, no, there are no such things. And then you can see glossy magazines sometimes that swing right across and say, well, you know, now we're apostles, you know, apostle of music, apostle of banking, apostle of... You think, what? <laughs> and so now it just means someone who's successful at such a thing. And, and so we, we need difference if we're going to say apostolic is a biblical concept. If we want to come to fullness of maturity, then we not only need to rediscover the language of Scripture, we need to rediscover what they actually did and make sure that's what we're talking about. An apostle is not just a nuts and bolts guy. 
He's not just a guy who comes and sits with the elders like a senior elder for an evening. There's something far bigger than that. Something far more significant than that. To inspire people to see who they are in Christ. To inspire people to see the whole body coming to... Well, Paul says you come to a fullness of maturity when every part is working properly. Every part is working properly. When we are one anothering. I know for myself, when I got converted, I'm so grateful from a pagan background to hear you could know God personally. I just thought this was breathtaking. But from then on, it was all personal. Personal evangelism, personal devotions, just me and God. It was wonderful I could know God. But I did. And then you went to church and it said on the wall, do not speak in the sanctuary. And we didn't have small groups in those days. So I came out of a culture with friends and language and conversation and values that I grew up with. And I started going to church where I wasn't allowed to speak to anybody. And there were no small groups. So you shook hands with the pastor at the door and went home. Until next time. And we've seen radical change now over the decades of breaking that all down, breaking it down, breaking it down. But I'm so glad to be here today to listen to what Eddie's saying because I feel I've never heard anybody like he is saying, well, he believes all these things because they're in the Bible anyway. Hasn't got some of the hang-ups we've had, but is actually bringing it right into church life in a way I've never heard before. And when I just met Eddie in Dallas, uh, I guess, two years ago now, and I began to hear some of the things he was, he opened up far more this morning, but just some of the things, how they're getting these ministries right into the lives of the people, right into their small groups, so that we're not only kind of radically changing church, we're radically changing small groups. So we're truly benefiting from apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, we're equipping the saints the potential to see a whole body come alive. To stop arguing about our apostles for today or not, but let's just do it, let's get on with it. Let's, let's say, no, this is a done deal, it's in the Bible. Why do we want another? Here's the Bible, Christianity, then we'll invent another one that doesn't have any of these things. We've got to try and take the world. Whereas, no, no, here's the pattern, here's, here's the pattern. He ascended on high. He's enthroned on David's throne. All the Old Testament promises are coming alive now. God said in the Old Testament, I'll, I'll, raise up a, I'll raise up a king. He'll sit on the throne. And the, the Old Testament saints, they, they were looking for a king who would come, a bit like David. But they, th- they thought he'd slaughter the Romans like David slaughtered the Philistines. They thought he's going to establish his kingdom and his kingdom will be an international kingdom like David's was, going further and further of the increase of his government, no end. And then it says, it says he'll be on his eternal. Oh, how's he, how's he be eternal? That's a big question. How's the Messiah going to be eternal? When we understand, Peter says on the day of Pentecost, he's now seated on David's throne. The kingdom is established. It is international. It is eternal. He is enthroned. We are in the kingdom. It's started. He wants a glorious kingdom that will grow and grow. We're on course. We're in purpose. We're not, we're not this funny little religious system. 
George Carey says Church of England will be one generation, it will be finished. Think, don't be silly. The church, <laughs> the church is going to increase and increase. Of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. Amen. And all the mountain of the house of the Lord will rise above all the mountains. All the nations will flow to it. God has spoken. We need to see the big vision of what God's after, which is to glorify his son and for his gospel to go to all families of the earth. But we need healthy churches for that. We need churches where every member is working properly. And for that to happen, beloved, we need to have apostles functioning, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, and to learn how. I certainly come here today to learn. To learn how. How does that get that right into our church life? Let's pray.